As has been mentioned this morning, Covenant Mercies is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. And I'm gonna take some time at the end of my message to update you on our ministry to tell you, and we will celebrate together uh, reflecting on 20 years of God's grace to Covenant Mercies and through Covenant Mercies. Uh, but we're gonna begin by revisiting one of our fundamental texts in scripture that really forms the foundation for why we do, what motivates us as God's people to do this type of ministry. So if you're with me in Luke chapter 10, I wanna begin reading in verse 25. This is the very well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, being Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he saw him, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Well, if we were to ask Jesus to describe in a single word what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, how do you think he would answer? Well, we can't know for sure, but judging from our text for this morning, we might venture the guess that Jesus would say, in a word, love for neighbor looks like compassion. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, I want to suggest to you that when it comes to compassion, we're a little bit like babies. We're a little bit like six-month-old infants. Now, I'm not saying that to insult you. I did say we. I'm including myself. I think this is part of the human condition. And here's what I mean. I happen to be someone who is fascinated by child development, especially early child development, those first few years. You just watch these little ones soaking in the world and learning new things and developing new physical and mental and intellectual milestones. Well, there's a game you can play with a little infant, say between the age of six months and 12 months, 
where you hold a toy in front of them. Maybe it's a toy that makes some noise or it's got some bright colors and it really grabs their attention. And then after they've, got, they've locked in on it, you hide it behind your back. Sounds a little cruel, but uh, now that I say it out loud. <laughs> but a child of about six months old will typically just like, you can kind of picture the little head bobbing. I haven't quite learned how to hold my head up yet. And they're just looking for the next thing to stimulate their attention. A child between nine months and 12 months will often follow that toy around behind your back. If, they've, if they're mobile now, they might even crawl around behind your back to find it. And that's because by that age, most children have developed what child development specialists call object permanence, which is simply the, uh, the understanding that objects continue to exist even when out of sight. Prior to object permanence, it is quite literally out of sight out of mind. Well, we are often just like infants who haven't yet developed object permanence. When something's out of our field of vision, when something's out of our normal experience, even things that are important to us, we often move on to other things as if they don't even exist. Gary Hagen, in his excellent book, Good News About Injustice, derives from this idea of object permanence a concept he calls compassion permanence, which he defines as a courageous and generous capacity to remember the needs of an unjust world, even when they're out of our immediate sight. Well, it was our conviction in 2002, and it remains our conviction today, that we must develop object permanence, we must develop compassion permanence, for the orphans of the world who are frequently out of our sight in our affluent society, but whose cause the Lord has called us to take up as his disciples. And as we develop compassion permanence, we also need to accurately define compassion as it's portrayed for us in Scripture. You may have noticed that everyone wants to think of themselves as compassionate. No one wants to think of themselves, few people want to think of themselves as uncompassionate. It's, it's fashionable to be a compassionate person. But the definition of this word is really up for grabs in our culture. And any time uh, a, a word is up for grab, a concept, an idea, especially one that comes from Scripture, is up for grabs in our world, that should be all the more reason for us to say, what does the Bible have to say about this? How does the Bible define compassion? How does Jesus define compassion? And this is an important question for us, not simply because Jesus is our moral guide and he's bound to have some wise words for us on this topic, but much more fundamentally because Jesus is himself the very definition of compassion. His life and ministry, leaving behind the glory of heaven to seek and save the lost in a sin-cursed world, giving up his life on a cross so that sinners could receive grace and forgiveness. This is the embodiment of biblical compassion. See, as we look at this text here, Jesus isn't just our great moral teacher here. Jesus is exhibit A in the compassion of God. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me, well, first of all, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're among this people today as we celebrate what uh, the folks around you have been investing in for 20 years. But listen, there's something you need to understand. You're, a not, you're not about to hear a moral lesson 
about living according to God's rules so that he can accept you. Your only hope for acceptance before Christ, uh, before God, is through faith in his son, Jesus, that the death and resurrection of Jesus are sufficient to cover the penalty for your sins and restore your relationship with God. And that's why any definition of compassion that doesn't include Jesus is incomplete. The greatest mercy we have to offer anyone is Christ and the forgiveness of sins made possible through his death and resurrection. But, church, but there's more to the story. Did you notice we weren't just swept away to heaven the moment we believed? There's something left for us to do. As the body of Christ... Saved by his great act of compassion toward us, we are now called to live out, to embody his compassion to others in a lost and dying world. We're called to love not only in word, but in deed and in truth. To do good to all, especially the household of faith. And we're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds so that we all grow up, so that we all mature into him who is our head, Jesus Christ. So, as Jesus defines biblical compassion for us this morning, let's remember that he's defining in words that which he has already embodied toward us. And he's defining what we are therefore called to grow up into, to mature into, as his disciples, and to personify as the body of Christ in our world. Now, let's catch ourselves up on our story here, because uh, this is a very familiar story to all of us, but we can miss some of the impact of what Jesus is communicating if we, if we don't remember the background in which he spins this story from his imagination. An expert in the law has confronted Jesus, and he's come, uh, Scripture tells us that he is trying to test Jesus. Now, you know this is always a bad idea, right? Jesus characteristically will turn the tables on these guys, and before they know it, they're the ones on the examination table, and that is exactly what he does here. The man says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you're the lawyer, you're the expert in the law. What does the law say? How do you read it? And the man answers astutely. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms his answer, and it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus affirms his answer, because elsewhere Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And he answered, the first and greatest of all the commandments is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he wasn't satisfied to stop there. He said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, he continued, all the law and prophets depend. On these two commandments, he binds them together in some way. All the law and prophets depend. Now, that's, that's a sermon for another Sunday, but that is a profound statement. And as Jesus affirms this man's answer, it seems to create some dissonance in his soul. He says, do this and you shall live. Now, this lawyer would like to think, it seems, that he has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he's a little more honest with himself on this neighbor thing, this other side of the coin. Have I really loved my neighbor? 
as myself. And so, like any good lawyer would do, he immediately begins trying to narrow down the implications of the law. Maybe if I can narrow the definition of my neighbor, this one I'm obligated to love, maybe then I can claim that I've truly loved God and truly loved my neighbor as myself. So it's in a spirit of self-justification, Luke tell us, tells us, that he asks Jesus the question, and who is my neighbor? Well, this is the moment Jesus has been waiting for. This really sets the stage for him to define the boundaries of the neighborhood, if you will, about as broadly as he possibly could. And in the process, he also defines for us what love for neighbor looks like. He defines it in a way that spotlights compassion as a central feature of this love. So in the balance of our time in the Word, I just want to draw out three characteristics, three marks of biblical compassion displayed for us in this parable. Listen, remembering all the while that Jesus is painting a portrait for us here, showing us what love for neighbor looks like. So three marks of biblical compassion. Number one, biblical compassion is active. It's active. Now, we often speak in terms of feeling emotion as if it's merely, uh, or feeling compassion as if it's merely an emotion. Uh, There's nothing wrong with speaking about compassion in those terms. That's just the way the words are, are rendered in our vernacular. But we need to be careful as we think about this because that phrase doesn't quite do justice to the full meaning of biblical compassion. Compassion is not something we merely feel. Compassion is something we do. Uh, One way I like to say it to kind of help myself remember this is compassion is a verb. It's a verb. It's an action word. Now, the, the biblical word can rightly be thought of as an emotion, but it's a deep guttural emotion that must lead to action. We can liken it to love in this sense, right? All of us would be familiar thinking of love in those terms. Yes, love is an emotion. We'd be wrong to suggest that it's not an emotion. In fact, I second that emotion. Uh, But, (laughs) all right. (laughs) But we would also say that love must have action associated with it, right? Uh, Young man, I'm glad your heart flutters when you hold her hand. Um, I'm I'm glad that you feel that. Uh, You're going to have to show me something more than that if you want me to put a stamp of love on what could be infatuation, it could be any number of other things. Love must if this is love, it will have actions in keeping with love associated with it. Well, the same is true of compassion. It's not the same thing as empathy. Empathy has become a a bit of a buzzword in our culture these days, and sometimes it's spoken of almost as if it's the end goal. I would say empathy is rarely, if ever, the end goal. Uh, It can be a good empathy, by the way, is just the, the, the ability to feel what someone else is feeling, to feel their pain, to put yourself in their shoes and understand life from their perspective. This can be a great first step toward compassion. But biblical compassion never stops there. It's it's not something we merely feel. It's something we do. And a closer look at the Good Samaritan will demonstrate this for us. Immediately after he's said to have compassion, verse 33, we have a list of things his compassion led him to do. He comes over to the man 
in in contrast to the others who've passed by on the other side of the road. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to an inn where he cares for him personally, and he pays for that care out of his own pocket. Compassion, as biblically defined, always has specific action associated with it. Compassion is a verb. Now, years ago, I I did a word study on the Greek verb, and it is a verb in the Greek New Testament, by the way, translated compassion. It's not a hard word to do a study on. It only appears 12 times in the New Testament. Three of those times, it's Jesus using that verb in one of his parables, the Good Samaritan being one of them. Uh, Once, it's used by a man who's pleading with Jesus to have compassion on him, and the other eight times are all in the Gospels and all in reference to the activities of Jesus. And we we should just pause there and be instructed by that alone. When this verb is used by biblical authors, it is used almost exclusively as a descriptor of the activities of Jesus in relation to his fellow man. And here's the point I want you to take home with you. Do not forget, this is the one point. Remember this. Every time, every time Jesus is said to have compassion or feel compassion or be filled with compassion or moved with compassion, that statement is immediately followed by some kind of merciful action on behalf of the Lord. I'm going to give you some of these references. You can jot them down and maybe read them this week and meditate on them. Matthew 14, 14, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Matthew 20, 34, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Mark 1, 41, moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and healed a leper. Mark 6.34, this one's possibly my favorite one to meditate on because Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away for some, for, from the crowds for some rest. You remember this scene? They've been ministering all day long. They're exhausted. They're getting in a boat. They're going to the other side of the lake, and they arrive at the other side of the lake, and the crowd has figured out where they're going, and there they are waiting for them. Now, you have to remember, Jesus is fully God, but he is fully man just as we are. He's tempted in every way, just as we are. He feels the effects of fatigue in his body. I can tell you how I'd be tempted in that moment, and and those who know me will affirm this is how Doug would be tempted. (laughs) I'd be tempted. These people are inconsiderate. Are you kidding me? We are exhausted. We've been ministering to people all day long. We're just trying to go and get some rest and relaxation. Not Jesus. This is what what Scripture says about Jesus. It says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And this is where he taught them and also fed the 5,000, recognizing they had physical needs as well. Luke 7, 13, Jesus has compassion on a grieving widow and raises her son from the dead. Without exception, where Jesus is said to have compassion on people, that statement is coupled with some kind of merciful action like healing or casting out of demons or feeding of hungry people or teaching lost sheep. See, Jesus doesn't simply feel compassion for people. He does something to alleviate their suffering. Jesus' compassion, biblical compassion, is always associated with merciful action. 
Biblical compassion is active. Well, secondly, biblical compassion is costly. It's costly. Now, Jesus' original hearers would have understood that, that this man, this Samaritan, probably would have had to tear his own clothing to bind up this stranger's wounds that he's encountered. He pours oil and wine into those wounds. Oil for soothing the pain, wine for disinfecting the wounds. He probably deprived himself of refreshment later in his journey because he expended those resources on this stranger he's encountered on the road. He didn't bring that oil and wine in order to dress a stranger's wounds. He brought it for his own consumption. Loading this man onto his own animal probably means he walked for the remainder of this journey. He takes him to an inn where he not only foots the bill for over three weeks room and board, that's how much two denarii would have covered, but he also states emphatically to the innkeeper that he will come back and reimburse any additional expenses that, that are incurred. He's not looking to pass it off to the innkeeper or anybody else. He will come back himself to complete this most uncommon act of generosity. This portrait that Jesus is painting really raises the questions for us. Are we willing to give out of the abundance that God has given us, the abundance of financial resources, the abundance of material possessions and time and gifts, both spiritual and otherwise? Are we willing to give out of that abundance to extend the love of God to others? And are we willing to take risks? See, there are costs we can count in advance, and I I recommend uh, the idea of of planned giving, budgeted giving, both of your finances and your time. Think through intentionally, how can I be as generous as possible with what God has given me? But there are risks as well for unanticipated costs that may be incurred along, along the road of discipleship. See, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho had a reputation for being extremely dangerous. It was about 17 miles in length and winding through the desert, surrounded by rocks and caves that that provided excellent hideouts for robbers to lie in wait. This really was the bad part of town. Uh, Think of whatever neighborhood you might not want to drive through late at night, and you will imagine exactly what Jesus' hearers would have understood when he said the road, a man was walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now think, think about this. This man was carrying money, enough money to pay for three weeks room and board at the local inn. He's carrying oil and wine. These are costly items. Many people would call him foolish for stopping. He's just encountered a man who's been beaten and robbed on the side of the road. It is obvious that this is a dangerous place. But his compassion is not stifled by the requirement that he put himself in a precarious position. And it can help here to remind ourselves this is not a man-made ideal. This isn't something I thought up to promote covenant mercies. This is Jesus' portrait showing us what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, this can be a hard pill for us as American Christians to swallow, and, and John Piper has some, an excellent challenge for us in this area. Dr. Piper says, there's a mindset in the prosperous West that we deserve a pain-free, trouble-free existence. 
When life deals us the opposite, we have a right not only to blame somebody or some system and to feel sorry for ourselves, but also to devote most of our time to coping so that we have no time or energy left over for serving others. This mindset gives a trajectory to life that is almost universal, namely away from stress and toward comfort, safety, and relief. Then, within that very natural trajectory, some people begin to think of ministry and find ways of serving God inside the boundaries set by the aims of self-protection. And it never occurs to anyone that choosing discomfort, stress, and danger might be the right thing, even the normal biblical thing to do. Being a Christian should mean that our trajectory is toward need, regardless of danger and discomfort and stress. In other words, Christians characteristically will make life choices that involve putting themselves and their families at temporal risk while enjoying eternal security. I don't know about you, but that, that challenge really hits me. I think that's a challenge we desperately need today. Our willingness to embrace cost and risk are the very things that should set us apart from the world in this. It's, it's all too common today to engage in cheap expressions of compassion that cost us nothing. They make us feel compassionate, but they have no real cost. Now, I can't say this for certain, but I, I think the priest and the Levite in Jesus' story may have gotten home later that day and tweeted about how horrible things have gotten on the road from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho. I'm, I'm joking. I'm poking fun around the edges of social media here. So let me say, I, and by, yeah, I'm not saying that it's wrong to post about the things you care about on social media. In fact, Covenant Mercies is posting on social media, and if you're active in that world, we'd be grateful if you would share our posts and bring more people in to the cause. There are good reasons and good ways to operate in that world. But, so I'm not saying that's wrong. This is what I am saying. Jesus is calling us to so much more than that right here. He wants us to see the glory and experience the joy of compassionate, sacrificial, cost-embracing, risk-taking love for neighbor that's only possible because of faith. It's only possible because we are bound together with the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Biblical compassion is costly and it sometimes embraces risks that would seem foolish apart from faith. Well, thirdly, and very briefly, biblical compassion is required. It's required. After the final brushstrokes of his portrait, Jesus concludes in verse 37 with the words, You go and do likewise. The disciple of Jesus Christ has no opt-out clause when it comes to biblical compassion. This isn't just for people with the gift of mercy, just for people who feel inclined in that way. This is for everyone who wants to honor God by obeying the first and greatest commandment to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, Jesus, that is a beautiful portrait, but you know what? That's not the world I live in. 
It's not the world I live in. I don't encounter half-dead strangers on the side of the road every day in my life. Well, because affluence is the norm in our society and because comfort and safety are the fruits that generally accompany that affluence, it's true. We don't step out of our homes each morning and see orphaned children scrabbling through the dump to find a scrap of food to eat. And as a result of that, we can very easily live our lives unaware of a world that's groaning under the curse of sin and disease and fatherlessness. But this is where we need to come back around again to that concept of compassion permanence. The Lord would remind us this morning that that is the kind of world we live in, whether it's part of our daily experience or not. And it's part of our calling as his disciples to go and do likewise, to take initiative toward that need, to cross over to the other side of the road and express the compassion of Jesus Christ to the lost and the suffering. Well, we are living in a world that's groaning under the curse of fatherlessness. And when we launched Covenant Mercies in February 2002, we knew the Lord was leading us to go and do likewise toward orphans internationally. And and we had a vision for developing this work in collaboration with indigenous local churches, with God's people on the ground in the developing world who do step out of their homes each morning to find fatherless children fending for themselves in the community. But it was all in the abstract at that time. We didn't know exactly where the Lord was calling us. We didn't know exactly who those partners would be or what that partnership, that collaboration would look like. Uh, Well, by the end of 2002, riding on the coattails of a relationship Sovereign Grace was developing uh, with a little church in a rural Ugandan town called Nagongera, We made our first foray into Africa, and it was immediately evident that this is where we are called. We are home. Uh, And this was at a time when HIV-AIDS was running rampant on the continent, and the antiretroviral drug therapy, which had totally revolutionized care for HIV patients here in the Western world, was not yet available in Africa. One of my enduring memories from that very first visit to Uganda was being introduced to a woman named Gladys. And I think we're going to have a slide that uh, introduces you to Gladys. Gladys had lost her husband to AIDS. Uh, She was left to care for two small children, though she herself was HIV positive, and that was a virtual death sentence at that time. Well, sadly, this is exactly what transpired in Gladys' case. I believe I only got to see her one more time in 2003 before she was gone, and her two small children were taken in by their grandmother. Now, what I've just described is a very personal story about my personal initiation into the AIDS crisis in sub-Saharan Africa, but it's also a story that's emblematic of millions at the time we launched this ministry, millions of parents lost to disease and other causes, millions of orphans left behind. Well, Gladys's daughter, Mercy Amanya, was only six years old at the time of her mother's passing. As she was taken in by her grandmother, I think we got a photo of, of Mercy at that age as well. Uh, as Mercy was taken in by her grandmother, we were preparing to launch our orphan sponsorship program. And Mercy was among the 248 children who were sponsored when we first launched the program in the early months of 2003. 
a program designed to serve just such children and families, and a program designed to give our church partners, embedded in the same communities with those children and families, the opportunity to extend the love of Christ to them. Now, I just need to pause here for a moment and bask in the beauty of partnership. I I mentioned in passing, almost like it was nothing, that we started with 248 children. Um, let Let me tell you, for those of you who weren't here, let me tell you a little something about Covenant Fellowship circa 2002. Um, September 2002, we stood on this stage and introduced Covenant Mercies to the church in concept. Uh, We didn't know exactly what the details of how this would all flesh out would be, but we took up an offering at the end of that service of over $100,000. So there's some seed money to get started with. Uh, Only a few months later, I stood up here and introduced our orphan sponsorship program. We didn't have pictures of the children. We couldn't tell you all the details. More than 200 sponsors signed up immediately afterwards. Um, Talk about a church that is leaning forward and ready to embrace the cost of biblical compassion. Well, you won't be surprised to learn that our partners on the ground in Africa were also eager to do the work of ministry as well, to be the hands and feet of this work in their own community, though they weren't in a position to be able to resource that financially. Our desire was that ultimately what the children and families in our program would experience is not merely another form of humanitarian aid, but rather an opportunity, a life-transforming expression of God's love delivered by his people right there in their own home community. And yes, all of this fueled from afar, fueled and mobilized by God's people in in another part of the world whose abundance at the present time, to put it in the words of 2 Corinthians 8, is meant to supply their need. Well, as Mercy Amanya grew up under the care of her grandmother, receiving an education that few grandmothers in such circumstances could provide, uh, the Lord really blessed this young woman's efforts. When she graduated from secondary school at the end of 2016, uh, we had only just recently established our Mapalo Scholarship Fund for Higher Education. Do you remember the Mapalo Fund? This is, this is the fund. So the sponsorship program takes children through high school or the vocational school equivalent. Then those who are eligible can go on for university studies, but they have to achieve it through the Mapalo Scholarship Fund. Uh, we had just established the fund. Mercy was one of our first Mapalo scholars. And uh, just a few months ago, she graduated from Uganda Christian University with a degree in law. Amen. I asked Mercy if she would write up her testimony. She wrote pages. These are some expert excerpts uh, from her, her testimony. She says, By the time I started understanding... I was staying with my mother at home, and she was sickly. I didn't know she was living HIV positive. Life became harder each and every day. I stayed in a family of many people, and sometimes we could go without food. Unfortunately, she passed on in 2003, and a big gap in my life was created, leaving me and my brother to stay with our grandmother. When I got into the program, I was in primary two, second grade, and that's how my new life started. I continued to stay with my grandmother because it was near the program offices to get immediate medical attention because I was sickly all the time, getting severe asthma attacks. I stayed with her until I completed my primary level. 
When joining my secondary level, I was admitted into one of the best schools in Tororo. This was something so great that had never happened in my life. I never stopped working hard. I never forgot about God because my late mother introduced me and made me know who God is and the great things God can do. And he did that by bringing covenant mercies. I never stopped thanking you, God, because I knew it was him since day one. To show that God is not done with me yet, after I completed my high school in 2016, it was the same year the Mapalo Scholarship started. I applied for the scholarship, and just when I thought it was done, God showed me that every end to us is just the beginning to him. Who knew that the young girl of primary two would reach this far in life? God did know because he always walked with me, introducing me to different people who would lift me up. I can testify that he never forsakes his children. He answers prayers. His words are promises he keeps. He's been good to me right from the first early years of my life. I believe it was the timing of God because until now, I am still witnessing his goodness. Church, isn't it amazing to hear a young woman whose life has not been a bed of roses? She lost both parents by the age of six. She's had to persevere through severe health challenges that could have easily derailed her. And she's encountered many other challenges that we would struggle even to wrap our minds around as Americans. But here she is testifying to the goodness of God in her life. He has been so good to me right from the early years of my life, she says. Well, this only happens by grace. And in many ways, part of, um, this part of Mercy's story is emblematic of our first 20 years in Covenant Mercies as well. Every year, we are seeing an increasing number of our sponsored children rise up Not to shake their fist at God for how hard their lives have been, and some of them have had very hard lives, but rather to bless God for the mercy and kindness that he's shown them. We're going to share a a video in, in a moment just celebrating God's goodness over our first 20 years, and after that, I'm going to get up and very briefly update you on some of the school projects that we're building and uh, new areas that we are expanding to. But listen, if you want to know why we are excited to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into these school projects, if you want to know why we're just as excited to break new ground this year as we were in 2002 when we began, you've just heard the reason why. Mercy's story is the reason why. Just as we hope and we expectantly prayed when we started this ministry 20 years ago, we have seen the merciful hand of God intervene in the lives of our children, transforming their stories from tragedy into triumph. And today they are rising up to sing of his goodness. As you may have picked up from the video, we have adopted as a a kind of a theme for our 20th anniversary, the phrase, do not despise small beginnings. Uh, One of the many ways you'll be invited to participate in in, uh, joining us in this work is by uh, maybe purchasing one of these beautiful t-shirts afterwards that includes that phrase. Um, Well, from day one, education has been a major priority in our program. It's it's kind of obvious that if we're going to help children break out of 
multi-generational cycles of poverty, education will be a critical need. Increasingly, as the years have gone by, many of you know, we've learned that building and developing our own schools can be an especially strategic investment uh, because it not only improves the quality of the education that children receive, but it also gives us, our teams on the ground, a Monday through Friday Christ-centered context where we can multiply our opportunities for the gospel and multiply our opportunities to have a shaping influence on their Christian character from a young age. Earlier this year, we had the opportunity to celebrate the official opening of a brand new building on the campus of Lighthouse Christian School in Zambia. We got a picture of some members of our Lighthouse team there in front of that new building. Um, this new building is such a resource for the school. It includes a spacious assembly hall. It includes a library. Uh, as far as we're aware, this is the only lending library for children anywhere in all of Ndola, and our children at Lighthouse will have access to all these wonderful resources. Uh, it also has computer and science labs, which equip us to be able to add grades 8 and 9. In fact, we've just gotten the permission from the Ministry of Education to add grade 8 for the coming school year. Uh, now, through the years, we have continued asking ourselves and asking the Lord to reveal to us compatible partners in other regions as well, other than those countries where we were already working. And the Lord has answered that prayer in the last few years uh, by introducing us to Grace Life Church on the outskirts of Monrovia in the West African nation of Liberia. This church is led by Pastor Diona Thomas, and one of the many, by the way, oh, we're still on Liberia, which is very cool. Um, <laughs> Diona is the one with the glasses on and back. These are some other members of the Grace Life team as well. Uh, one of the many reasons, and there are many reasons, we are delighted to develop a partnership with them is their vision for providing better educational opportunities for the children and families in their communities. I, I don't have time to go into all the, the factors influencing this, but education is is. If, if anything, a more severe need in Liberia than, than even in the other countries where we're working. And so uh, quality education is, is a strongly felt need in the communities. And Diona and his team have actually uh, included the provision of schools, the provision of better educational options as a part of their church planting strategy. Wherever they plant new churches, they're intending to start a school as well to give families in a, in a community an opportunity to send their children to a better school. Well, they had already started Grace Life Academy before Covenant Mercies arrived on the scene. Uh, they just put up some temporary structures on the church compound. But earlier this year, we began sponsoring 50 children who will receive their education through Grace Life. And our plan is to add many more as the, this program gets firmly established. We're working with the Grace Life team uh, to buy land and to develop a site plan to begin development of the Grace Life Academy campus in the years ahead. Uh, I'd appreciate your prayers. I'm leaving tomorrow. I'll be there this week, and Lord willing, we'll be making some decisions on land opportunities and site planning. So please um, remember me in your prayers, and remember us, if you would. Well, church, I need to end on a note of gratitude. I am so grateful to God that we arrive at our 20th anniversary, not just looking back at his grace over our first two decades, which we certainly are, but also looking forward with exciting new opportunities in front of us. 
And I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for being the kind of church that is always leaning forward, eager to embrace the costs and the risks associated with biblical compassion as we continue in this mission together. Amen.